2, Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined by my co-host and the co-author of our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Naran Alajba. Good evening. I do have a personal note on the recording quality of these two podcasts with Dr. Kermit Jones. Unfortunately, my microphone wire was loose, so some of the audio on my end was distorted. So I did have to go back and re-record some of that audio. There were no changes made to the content whatsoever. However, you may notice some variation of the audio quality throughout these two podcasts. My apologies for that, and thanks for listening. Before we start our show, let's talk about this week's sponsor, Deputy. At your practice, what happens when staff call out sick? How much time does it take to find replacements who can fill in? If you need to cancel appointments because you're short-staffed, what does that cost your practice? Deputy is a simple app that's helped more than 250,000 workplaces tackle this problem. Deputy makes it easy to schedule staff in line with patient demand, communicate schedules with your team, and instantly find replacements when someone calls out sick. To learn more and to try Deputy out for free, go to drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash deputy. And now back to our show. More than ever, healthcare and politics are closely intertwined. Decisions made by politicians have a major impact not only on healthcare policy, but on the day-to-day practice of medicine by physicians. Today, we are excited to be talking about healthcare politics with Dr. Kermit Jones. He's a California internal medicine physician and an attorney, and he's working to bring his medical expertise into the political arena. Dr. Jones, welcome to the show. Rebecca, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the time to talk. Kermit, can you start us out by telling us about your background and how you came to be involved in law and politics as well as medicine? Sure, I'd love to. So my background is I grew up on a small farm in South Haven, Michigan. One of the biggest, uh, I think, early um, experiences that I had in healthcare was my mom was a home health nurse, and she helped me understand the importance of compassion and relationships in medicine. And uh, we on our farm had 50 head of cattle, and I got to see anatomy very early on uh, in terms of you know how big a cow heart actually is. I and mean, that was one of the funnest things I could uh, say in terms of bringing that to my biology class. Um, but I'd say in terms of medicine, I had an opportunity to shadow our family practice doctor when I was in high school, and he was on his way to retirement at the time. And I never forgot, he told me, he said, Kermit, medicine is going to look different uh, over your career than it did in my career. It's not going to be enough to just have a medical degree. You're going to have to either get a business degree or some administrative degree or a law degree, something that gives you an opportunity to translate your experience in medicine into something else for people to understand. And so it was with that conversation that I decided when I was going to medical school that I was going to do some type of combined degree program. And I figured I could take a business class here and there, but nothing was going to teach me the law like going to law school. And so it was through that process that I did the MD-JD program at Duke um, starting in 1998, finished in 2005. And during that, that program, I got the introduction to a lot of the issues that I think a lot of physicians um, aren't taught in medical school in terms of risk and negligence, um, intellectual property issues, different types of contract issues. So it was a very phenomenal experience. That is such an interesting background. I wish that I had known about those types of combined programs. And there's so many doctors that are interested in law school and the law. 
know, tell us a little bit more about what that experience was like. I think a lot of our listeners would be really fascinated. because I hear so many doctors say, I'm thinking about going to law school. Yeah, definitely. I would say of, of no other experience that I had, it helped me frame um, medicine in a way in which I could understand the importance of individual rights, um, you know, in terms of patient autonomy, informed consent, making sure that patients understand what we're doing to them, because if they don't understand that, they don't consent, then it is assault and battery. Uh, but then also making sure on the other side of that, uh, the rights of physicians, you know, and making sure that we understand you know, legally, what um, we uh, are able to bring to the table, and then in terms of what we should advocate for in terms of our ability to actually do our job. I'd say in addition to a lot of that background information I got, understanding the importance of advocacy, understanding how to frame arguments based upon evidence and logic and reasoning uh, was probably the, the most fulfilling thing that I got out of, out of the law school experience. And then I think much broadly, I had opportunities to work on HIV and AIDS policy at the World Health Organization, got to work on intellectual property issues. Um, I had the opportunity to work at a law firm doing FDA regulatory work, which was very important because then that helped me understand that process when I had to advocate for specific medicines for my mom to go on uh, fast forward when she was diagnosed uh, with lung cancer about uh, 25 years later. I think people forget how much the professions are linked. And certainly as a pediatrician, you know, every day I'm facing questions. I've got all these 13 and 14 year old teenagers who want to get COVID shots. And it's so interesting when I have one parent or the other who says, absolutely not, I'm not allowing it. And it's of course, and I know this probably varies by state, but as a pediatrician, this has come up for years, you know, where we've had to talk about the mature minor doctrine and do we think the child can consent? And it's been amazing to me how few, we have a lot of practices in Washington that refuse to give any shots to a child that's under 18 if a parent doesn't approve it. And I'm over here saying, hey, it's one parent. We need one parent, you know, to approve it. We we also, if it's a mature minor doctrine and we feel- That we have that we have discussed it with the patient. We've known the patient their entire lives. They really understand what they're facing and the risks, benefits, and alternatives. Then we can discuss that in our chart. You know, this child meets mature minor doctrine standards. I'm going to go ahead and immunize them. And again, it's always been able to hold up. I, I definitely have seen parents get angry with me, but but the bottom line is, I think it's so so important for patient autonomy that we have this understanding of the law as it applies to whatever specialty. Obviously, mine's pediatrics, but um. Let me ask you something about that mature minor doctrine. Is that something that's statewide or is that a federal policy? For us, for us, it's I my understanding is it's statewide. Again, I only know Washington state law. I know that whenever these things come up, I do always contact my my malpractice insurance company, but uh, I originally had this problem. Uh, the child uh, her, lost her mother and there was no father. So she was taken in by a kind of unrelated guardian when she was uh, 14 years old. She's now in her thirties and I'm taking care of her kids in another generation, but immunizing her at that time, you know, at 14 was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And that's when I first learned about how do you immunize an unaccompanied minor because this comes up from time to time. And I remember thinking, you know, I wish I'd gone to law school because there are so many times these small issues come up, but it's allowed me to sort of fight for patients, which of course is, you know, so important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and it does vary from state to state because the laws of the states um, are going to vary based upon whatever state you're in and the Supreme Court precedent uh, in that state and the case law. Um, But I would say that this goes to your point, to the capacity and whether the you know minor, whether they're emancipated minor or not, has capacity to make those types of decisions. 
And thankfully, the law is broad enough that it's outside of, you know, much broader than medicine, in which we've determined whether, you know, they felt as if people would have or minors would have capacity to contract for specific things, to make specific decisions. Um, and this falls into medicine. And it's very important. And even to your point, you know, we've had situations where, unfortunately, doctors uh, would not know whether a patient had the capacity to make a decision or not. Um, and we're making, you know, very serious life or death decisions based upon that because they didn't understand the law in the state. So I'm glad that that's something that it sounds like uh, the two of you have been, uh, you know, self-educated. And yeah, I mean, it's something that comes up all the time. I mean, even just today, the reason I was asking for that question is today I received a message from a patient saying that the child wants to get the vaccine, one the COVID-19 vaccine specifically, I think 15-year-old. One parent says yes, the other parent says no, and then there's the dilemma, now what? So I guess this is where it comes in really handy to have our attorney colleagues, or I, if you're MDJD, or obviously that's even better, but um, there are nuances that happen all the time. So it sounds like not only is that helpful as practicing as a physician, but also a lot of attorneys parlaying into the political arena, and that's something, Dr. Jones, that you are looking at right now. And in fact, I'd like to just share a little bit of the email that you sent us, which said, like Dr. Alajba recently said, healthcare has been hanging by a thread for some time. Reading the book, Patients at Risk, has emphasized to me that physicians have no one fighting for us and our ability to care for patients at the congressional level for decades. I also learned this butting heads with policy wonks when I was on the healthcare team on a recent presidential campaign. So tell us all about your journey into politics and what your ideas are. Definitely. No, thank you for that opportunity, Rebecca. So um, as I said before, going back to uh, the MDJD program, I thought uh, by doing that program and doing some things uh, with law firms, I would have a very deep knowledge of what uh, I need to do on a policy level to try to advocate for doctors and for patients and for uh, members in the healthcare system. I was surprised uh, when I worked on a couple of different presidential campaigns and had these discussions with uh, the people that, you know, advise candidates that, you know, may have master's degrees in administration or, you know, can read statistical studies, but have not seen any patients, you know, in clinic and, and or in the hospital. And why that's important is, you know, these are policies that determine how we see our patients. It determines the risk associated with it, how we reimburse it, it, it their determinations of the incentive. And so because of that, it, you know, determines how much time uh, we can spend with the patients, the RVUs, you know, how that's calculated. Uh, and because of that, that actually determines the, the leaps and bounds, so to speak, of what we can do and how we can establish those trust relationships to uh, influence behavior. And I was surprised because at the end of the day, the, it seems as if the voice that was least listened to or the one that had the, the least amount of clout was the physician voice, you know, tons of other people, you know, if you'd spent 15 years in government and you know, did this, that, and the other, but still never saw any patients, you were listened to more, you know, if you were, you know, from a you know, nurse's union or something like that, you were listened to more. Um, but when it came down to the physicians, uh, a lot of the physicians were seen as, okay, you're the assembly line worker, you do this, you do that, um, and we will circumscribe what you do and move forward. And I was, I was uh, surprised, there's a gap. 
Yeah, you know, there really is a gap. And I think about things like the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Uh, they have these nurse executive fellowship programs. And what they do is they actually send nurses to Washington, D.C., and they learn how to craft healthcare policy. They get involved in different committees. They get to meet legislators, legislative aides. Basically, they get introduced to this world of politics, and they really start to get embroiled in it. And really, we don't have anything like that for physicians. So I think that may be a little bit of some of the reasons for that gap. And, you know, I also think that maybe it's part of the reason why non-physician practitioners, especially nurse practitioners, have gained some of the rights and the privileges that they have now, and maybe even why they have a louder voice in healthcare policy than even physicians. Well, I mean, just kind of to your point. So I was looking at some statistics a little bit earlier, earlier, and, you know, over the past uh, 40 years, 1975, uh, the number of um, hospital administrators has increased 3,200%. The number of primary care doctors has increased 150%. The 21 times increase. And there was a study that came out uh, with the Commonwealth, Mirror Mirror, that looked at and compared the U.S. healthcare system with 11 other countries uh, around the world. I think it was actually 10. And it showed that we were pretty much last in everything except the amount that we pay and process measures, right? So it seems as if we're very good at measuring things. There are 400 quality measures that Medicare uh, requires of hospitals. Um, but when it looks at, when you look at our life expectancy, it had the biggest hit that it had uh, since World War II last year. Uh, when you look at our um, primary care numbers and how we compare to other um, uh, countries, uh, we're dead last. So whatever we're doing, it's absolutely wrong. So, you know, this, this argument of, you know, not increasing the number of primary care doctors. Um, circumscribing the amount of time that we see with our patients, um, you know, letting these other, um, you know, members of the team, you know, granted, I mean, mid-levels are members of the team, but they're mid-levels that are members of the team that in some instances have either one-fifth or is up to one-twelfth of the training that we've had kind of, you know, determine and dictate um, how things are done uh, is, is, is problematic. Um, and so that's why I argue that unless we have more physicians at the table, whether it's through some of these fellowship programs that you mentioned, or like me running for Congress, um, we're going to continue to erode the ability for physicians to establish those trust relationships with patients. Right now, I'll have tons of patients that come in and say, you know, well, look, I looked this up on Dr. Google, and this is why, you know, I think, you know, you should give me ivermectin as opposed to, you know, try to suggest me getting vaccinated. And no matter what you say to them, yes, it may lower the pH of endosomes, but so does uh, hydrogen peroxide, and you're not going to drink a bunch of that, right? So, you know, unless we have these relationships in which we establish trust, unless we are reimbursed in a way in which, uh, you know, our value is recognized, um, then we're going to continue to have worse outcomes and higher costs in healthcare. So I love that you brought up the uh, dropping life expectancy because I've actually looked at it over the past few years and written quite extensively of how we, we had a drop in life expectancy for three years in a row. And then we had a year before COVID where it kind of held or even increased a little bit. And then, of course, you know, 2020 obliterated everything. And so um, what's interesting is while one is due to COVID, we still were trending downward in life expectancy. And right. I absolutely came to the same conclusion that you did, that we just don't have enough primary care doctors. And, um, you know, I'll take Montana, for example, because that's where I've done most of my work trying to, you know, be on the admissions committee at the uh, University of Washington and expand the take or expand the um, 
the ability to keep the students home in Montana where they're accepted and then get them to go out into primary care. So there's incentives to do this, right? And I guess what I wanted to ask is, do you have thoughts about how to increase primary care, uh, physicians and primary care specialties? Because that's where we have a problem. That's what we're doing wrong, among many other things. But that's something that feels really tangible that we can set goals and we can improve upon. Yes, Naran, I do have policies that I do want to implement if I had the privilege of getting into Congress through Present California's fourth congressional district. And I do want to say that I have to say that I was brought to your group by other colleagues of mine that I'm writing a paper with, um, Dr. Maya Kawaji and Dr. Hector Guzman, you know, both of which were, um, I think, uh, have at least uh, been familiar with the advocacy that your organization has done. And I mentioned them because we're actually writing a paper on this right now. So when you look at the trends in terms of primary care, we have trended towards many doctors moving into more employment-based care practices, you know, either, you know, with large HMOs or hospitals. Um, and because of that, you know, they kind of come under the, the fold of hospital administrators, which in some instances isn't necessarily a bad thing if those hospital administrators, administrators are actually also practicing. But in many instances, they're not. Um, so one of the things that we advocate for is you have to be able to make it so that there's competition, which tends to work in every system, for those particular primary care doctors. You do that by you know, giving them the economic resources that they need to stay independent. You know, we learned during COVID that uh, when the federal government wants to, it can put $6 trillion into the economy right, and keep going. Uh, the same thing should be advocated for with respect to primary care doctors. If one of the policies I want to put in place is if you are a primary care doctor that wants to hang your shingle out in an area that's uh, not a lot of primary care doctors or rural, the federal government should be able to say to you that we'll give you a $250,000 forgivable loan to set up a practice. If you stay there for five years, it's completely forgiven. And they'll also provide insurance for you to do that. If you're a group of two, you know, it would be $600,000. A group of three, it would be a million dollars. So doing this in a way in which you provide the economic means for physicians to stay independent and do things in the community that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Otherwise, they make the decision of becoming employees. Once they become employees, they are turned into cogs, pretty much, and they no longer have the independence of their practice. So that's point one. Point two, as both of you, I'm sure, are very uh, aware, there are programs out there that help residents that come out of residency go into public health service forgivable loan programs. A lot of those are designed that you have to work at a public hospital or some public setting. I think that is is short-sighted. Um, there are many instances in, in areas, whether it's rural or urban, where there may not be a public hospital there. There may only be uh, private options. We should have people get loan forgiveness, whether you go into an area where they're not primary care doctors, whether it's public or private, you still get loan forgiveness. Because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is increase the number of primary care doctors out there. We should shorten the pipeline make it so that if people want to go into primary care, there are more monies out there for them to be able to do that. And there's some places that we've proven with respect to the UK where people don't necessarily need to be in undergrad for four years. They can be in undergrad for two years and go straight to medical school if they go on a primary care pathway. Uh, increase the reimbursements of primary care doctors. Um, you know, it, it, for a primary care doctor to compete with specialists, and this is why 70% of people finish residency and go into specialty, um, one, because they make so much money, and then two, because they don't need to see as many patients. You have to increase the amount of money that you're going to pay primary care doctors. 
And also, Kermit, get rid of some of the unnecessary burden on the primary care physician, because that's one of the reasons that I've opted out of Medicare at this point is I could not comply with meaningful use as a small practice. It costs money and I cannot implement an electronic health record that is required to capture you know, reasonable reimbursement. So that's one of the things that really has to be changed. Everything you said, I'm 100% on board with. But then also, we really got to cut some of those barriers that make it make it to where nobody wants to do primary care anymore. Well, well Rebecca, also, you, hit the, you hit the nail on the head. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want no, to say ahead, one other thing. I agree. I, I, no, no. What, one other thing. I just want to throw this out here so I don't, I don't forget. With those 400 quality measures, in some instances, several hundred quality measures in the outpatient setting, one of the primary things I would do is challenge CMS to actually drop quality measures that have not correlated with improved outcomes. There have been studies by people like um, Andrew, I think, Ryan at University of Michigan demonstrated that some of the quality measures we have out there do not correlate with outcomes, uh, and you require people to meet these quality measures. You know, if for every two hours that a physician spends trying to fill out a lot of these measures, that in some instances is five to 10 less patients that they get to see that day. And you create a supply demand mismatch. And I'll stop with that. Sorry, I've been talking too long. No, I was actually going to essentially say what you were talking about, because, of course, uh, I am opted out of Medicare as well for obvious reasons. None of my patients qualify for Medicare. Um, thankfully. Um, and I would say that, you know, I'm still on paper. And and what's so interesting is when you talk about this forgivable loan, you know, I've been spending with COVID. I'm in Washington state, obviously, and I have young children. We are not flying on airplanes and we are not traveling other than to go to the San Juan Islands, which is a small um, area, group of five main islands and a number of surrounding islands. And there's not a single pediatrician on the islands. Actually, um, I've now... Wow. And, and I, I've been vacationing there and just talking to the community and it, it keeps coming up over and over that they need a pediatrician. And what's the, it's easy for me, right? I have all the insurance contracts. I have paper charts. I can easily go up there. I've talked a lot about spending three days a month up there doing basic preventative care. And the big log jam right now is essentially number one, finding a place to put the clinic or put a clinic or rent space or whatever and make that investment to hang the shingle. And it, and it really wouldn't be hard. I'm already up and running, Right. But something like you're talking about would be perfect for someone like me. I could be open in a month or less with a grant or a loan. And, you know, again, the PPP loan, I know for many small businesses, including my own, kept my employees working. It it was easily forgiven because I followed the rules and it really um, helped bolster independent practices to stay open. So I think that that's kind of a fantastic um, idea and plan. Um, And I think these are the kinds of innovative solutions we need. Yeah, what we saw during COVID with the 1134 waivers was that, you know, to make it so that you could, you know, do virtual medicine anywhere in the country was the sky didn't fall, right? I mean, so we had a lot of things where they said, hey, look, if you do X, Y, and Z, it's going to compromise patient data and HIPAA and these other types of things. But in a crisis, all of a sudden, all those regulations went away, right? So we are regulation heavy, you know, and in the instance where we were trying to figure out how do we get more patients seen, uh, have better relationships, and save money, we need to look at what's out there and start trimming the fat away from things so that people can actually do the jobs they're trained to do. You know, I think that this is the main reason why we have that, what was it, 3,000% jump in healthcare administrators, because it coincides with all of the requirements and obligations that healthcare centers must comply with. So they hire all these different people. And we create yeah. more and more members of the team. And to me, that just 
uh, basically spreads around the responsibility so that really ultimately nobody's really in charge. You just sort of pass the buck right. from person to person, which, you know, I, I say that the trouble with team-based care is that you're only as good as your weakest link. And when you have a huge team of all these different people, one person doesn't pull their weight and patients get harmed. So that's an unintended consequence of all of this. So um, I'm doing direct primary care. So I've cut out all of that sort of thing. I'd love to see a way that doctors could work with the system, be able to take Medicare, be able to take insurance, but not be administrated to death over it. I think that's really a big solution. And, you know, you mentioned about statistics. One of the things that we uncovered in our book is that the United States ranks 24th of 28 similar nations as far as our number of physicians per capita. And yet rank number one as far as nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And I think it directly correlates to this increased burden. We've hired uh, all these associates to try to help us be able to take care of patients. And the question is, did we really need all of that? Or could we have just simplified the system so that doctors could have the time with patients and not have to do all this? Rebecca, I I 100% agree. I mean, so I looked at some data before we got on that said, on average, uh, across the country, the number of physicians per 100,000 ranges from about maybe 119 uh, in, in Mississippi, and it may be 190, I'm not looking at the data in front of me, to over 300 per 100,000 in the Northeast. Um, in my district, California's fourth, it's actually closer to zero per 100,000 in Alpine to about 80 per 100,000 in El Dorado, which is significantly less than the, the average or even outside of that, that median for a, a state itself. But where that goes to is the exact point of what you said. You know, when you look at the basic economics, you know, which I I took enough economics classes to understand this, if in order to hang out your shingle, you have to have all of these people that can process the claims, you have to have all the people that can run the, the management department, and you boil all that overhead down in the per unit cost, it costs too much for that physician to go out into some, you know, small area, uh, you know, on the islands off of, uh, you know, Washington to set up their shingle. And that's directly correlated with all of these different requirements, you know, and, you know, just to be completely fair, you know, I'm not saying that the people that are making a lot of these rules aren't well-intentioned. You know, I'm saying that it is hard to be in Baltimore where CMS and Medicare, you know, is and and dictate the terms of how someone's going to see someone in Washington state or how they're going to see him in California. Um, It's just not going to work because, there's not enough understanding of the nuance of what's going on in those situations for that to occur. I'll give you one more good example. I was talking to a previous president of the AMA, uh, and, and we were talking about some of these different you know, average requirements that are sometimes uh, placed on, on uh, reimbursement uh, for particular types of uh, patients. And you know, this person was talking about how, based upon the type of patient, you know, you may have a situation where, let's say, a patient may have, you know, stage three or stage four uh, type of cancer that, you know, has distant mets of one type um, versus another. And so based upon those, those differences, you, one patient will be excessively more expensive to treat than the other one. And if by the luck of the draw, you just have more of those patients, it's going to be a whole lot harder for you to get the reimbursement that you need based upon the averages that come you know, out of Baltimore and D.C. 
Now, I do want to talk about um, I my one of my goals when I came out of uh, residency was to be a White House fellow. So I applied and um, was not accepted, of course. And, you know, that's uh, is what it is. But I've always been fascinated to talk to someone who's done it and what it was like. And so um, could you tell us about that experience and what you took away from it and what you've benefited um, having done it, et cetera? Tell me all about it because I didn't get to do it. Yeah, no, thank you. Well, I, I feel very lucky uh, to have done it. I'll be honest with you. And I was shocked, you know, when, when I got uh, chosen, you know, I'll tell you, even my wife, uh, when we found out um, that I got accepted, she said, I'll be honest with you. I didn't think you were going to get this. I wasn't sure. You know, I was like, you know, did they make some mistake or something like that? You know, I, I would say it was probably one of the most broadening experiences I ever had. And that's even including uh, being in the military and deploying to the Middle East. And it was because you know, there's three components to the program. There's the fellowship where you come in with 11 to 19 people after the whole process of the interviews. There is an educational component where you get to listen to these leaders that have grappled with some very serious you know, decisions, you know, like uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell or getting an opportunity to talk to the president. And then also, you know, there's a component of, let's say, uh, your, your educational or like the, the um, opportunity of the placement itself. So, you know, what you're doing in that particular year. So what I was doing during that particular year is I was working in the immediate office of Secretary Sebelius, uh, which was a phenomenal experience, a very great leader to have, cabinet secretary. Um, and I got to work on military medical issues, trying to figure out how people that were leaving the military that were working as corpsmen and medics could preserve some of their GI Bill, didn't have to get retraining and things they were trained to do there to get certifications. And also working on innovation issues, trying to look at one of the new institutions at the National Institutes of Health. Um, and seeing what metrics, you know, could be used to determine how, how well it was doing. I would say what the biggest thing I got out of that program was an understanding that it is, it is very challenging to run uh, a government and run a country as powerful and as big as ours is um, without realizing that there are going to be some mistakes that are made, um, that people that uh, come to the conclusions uh, that they do and, and try to do the best that they can you know, need our help, need our political process to make it work. And the program itself that was designed by Lyndon Johnson was designed to take, you know, lucky people like me, put them into government, let them see what the federal government can do. And then they take that experience back to their communities and continue to learn from that. And that's what I wanted to do. So after having that experience, you know, we settled in California. Um, I saw what California's fourth congressional district, which runs from Tahoe all the way down to Yosemite, uh, needed in terms of access to primary care, um, the idea of health being much broader than just seeing your doctor, you know, it being whether you have access to, you know, breathable air, nutritious food, uh, whether you have a community that supports you, all those types of things, and then helping to strengthen that relationship between communities and the federal government. So I'd say those were the biggest lessons I learned uh, in the privilege of being a White House fellow. That sounds so cool. And you have to forgive me because I don't know too much about the program. Is there one that's specifically for physicians or is it open to all different professionals and how many people get picked and how do you go about finding out about this for our listeners? Sure, Rebecca. So I'll tell you one thing. It is, it's not specific to physicians. And, uh, you know, to kind of go back to what I was saying to uh, Naran, the biggest lesson I'd say I did learn was I'm not as smart as I thought I was, you know, because you get in there with these people. Some of them have like, you know, run organizations that had like 100,000 people, you know, some guy was like a, a, a sniper 
you know, in the seals or something, right? And so you feel to yourself when you come in, like, oh, wow, I'm kind of a, you know, I'm a pretty, you know, talented guy. I did a law degree and a medical degree. And you see these other people and you read what they did. And they're just like, okay, I'm just going to sit in the back and be quiet and listen to everybody else. But yeah, it is, it's a phenomenal, I think, uh, leadership training experience. But what I will say to that is I think a lot of opportunities like that are ones that doctors should consider doing. Because unless we understand how to interact with these different components of government and society and really advocate for ourselves and our profession, then we're going to continue to get our profession eroded. One of my favorite quotes uh, in politics is, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I'd say in terms of doctors and our profession and why we went into this, which was to take care of people, to have that compassionate ability to change people's lives, um, has been eroded by a lot of people that are in this for the money, that are in this for, well, you know, I couldn't become a doctor, so let me become something else, but I still want to be called a doctor, you know, these types of things. Or, you know, like I said, people that run for office and aren't necessarily concerned with figuring out how to get the best care for patients. They're more concerned with how do I get the best sound bite on so I can get in office and people actually think that I care. Um, and that's not why I'm running. You know, I'm running because I've had multiple experiences in the healthcare system, seen over 20,000 patients, uh, and also saw that, you know, but for the fact that I was a doctor, my mom wouldn't have gotten the care that she needed as a stage four lung cancer patient that never smoked. Um, you know, and, and that is what taught me that unless we have more physicians at the table, um, we're going to end up worse off. Perfect. There's so much more that I want to get into. We're out of time. So I'd like to bring you back for part two. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon.com and at BarnesandNoble.com. We would love for you to subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel. It's called Patients at Risk. And of course, if you're a physician and you'd like to be more involved in promoting physician-led care and truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners, we would love for you to join our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection. Our website is physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much for joining us. Before we end, here's a quick reminder. If you want to boost efficiency across your practice and make staff scheduling easier, try the Deputy app. You can try this award-winning technology for free by going to drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash deputy. That's drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash deputy. Thanks so much and join us for part two.